Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of the amazing city of Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host. And as always, we have Troy Eller English controlling the buttons and playing with the dials right now because I'm speaking too loud. How you doing, Troy? I'm okay, but yes, you were speaking a little too loud. That's all right. That's fine. I can adjust. You can always adjust the dials. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So... How long have we been doing this podcast? Uh, four or five years. We're going to have to have an anniversary show sooner or later. Yeah. And pile up all the books that I've read for this thing. We're, we're nearing 65 episodes. We'll have a celebration at 75. Okay. The ripe old age of 75. Sure. But I got tons of books now. Do you want some of them? Yeah. Okay. You got some of the books then. Fantastic. Now, the reason I bring up books is there have been a lot of wonderful books written about Detroit, from detective books to deep dives into urban history to labor history and everything in between. But there are three books about three lawyers who epitomize what what it means to put everything on the line. And I mean, they put their careers and lives on the line. These men were involved in doing the right thing in the name of equality and justice for black Americans, labor rights, human rights, and preserving the U.S. Constitution. These books are The Color of Law, Ernie Goodman, Detroit, and the Struggle for Labor and Civil Rights, written by Steve Babson, Dave Elsel, and Dave Riddle. And then there is Maurice Sugar, Law, Labor, and the Left in Detroit, 1912-1950, written by Christopher Johnson. And finally, the book that we'll be talking about on this podcast is No Equal Justice, The Legacy of Civil Rights Icon George W. Crockett Jr., written by Edward Littlejohn and Peter Hammer, that was put out by Wayne State University Press this year. Now, George Crockett Jr. was an attorney, a congressman, a jurist, and a defender of those that could not defend themselves at a time in America where those that had different beliefs in a political structure were put away on trial unfairly. He protected black Americans in Detroit from police brutality when others turned their backs and, of course, defended labor unions. He had his highs and his lows, but also always remained steadfast and resolved to be present for social justice. No Equal Justice was written by Edward Littlejohn, Professor Emeritus of Wayne State University Law School, and Peter Hammer, who was named the A. Alfred Tubman Endowed Chair of Wayne State University Law School in fall of 2018, and is the director of the Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights. The Keith Center is dedicated to promoting the educational, economic, and political empowerment of underrepresented communities in urban areas. What they have written chronicles Crockett's life from leaving Jim Crow South to coming to Michigan and then his life journey and various episodes in American history. He was there at the Folly Square trial in New York City in the late 1940s defending communists. He was in Mississippi during the Freedom Summer in 1964, and he was a judge of the Recorder's Court in Detroit from 66 to 1978, ensuring the law protected everyone. Now, if you know your Detroit history, you know that was some heady times from 66 to 78. Oh, did I mention he was a congressman from 1980 and 1990? So, please enjoy this podcast about a true American hero, and then order the book No Equal Justice, the legacy of civil rights icon George W. Crockett Jr. Oh, and also order all those books that I just mentioned. They're all from Wayne State University Press, and they all talk about these lawyers who are all in the same law firm defending justice. Peter, how you doing? Doing well, Dan. Nice to talk with you. Nice to talk to you too. Is this uh it's good to see you uh, not in a reading room but somewhere else. Um <laughs> 
Yeah, you, you use this a lot. And I want to talk about this book that you come out, um, your biography on George W. Crockett Jr. Thoroughly researched, well done. Um, can you talk about this process of researching this book and what's it like digging in so intimately into someone's life? Yeah, no, there's a great story behind it. And I want to give a shout out to, to my co-author, Ed Littlejohn, uh, emeritus professor at Wayne State Law School, because uh, the book itself has an interesting story. Um, Ed started this project in the early 1990s, right? Uh, and uh, at that point, uh, both Crockett and Ernie Goodman were still with us. Uh, Ed was able to do extensive interviews uh, with both of them uh, and then got to a point where other things eclipsed this project and it didn't get finished. So it was about half done. Uh, and uh, 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 it was only about five, six years ago that Ed suggested that we join efforts and, and complete the project, which was a, a wonderful invitation. Um, but uh, because of Ed's relationship with Judge Crockett, uh, Crockett gave him a lot of his personal papers. Uh, so that became part of the Little John collection uh, and became one of the primary sources of materials that we had. So we're really blessed to have not only been able to interview him, uh, get a sense of, 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 of his view on, on different issues, uh, but also have access to, to so many of his papers to help round out uh, what that story is. Uh, but Ed had an advantage. Uh, he knew the judge, right? Uh, and by the time I came along, uh, the judge uh, had uh, passed for you know a, a few decades. Uh, and his public persona is pretty austere, you know, pretty formal, pretty austere. Uh, and so it was very difficult for me from just the cold record to really get a sense of what his personality was like. Uh, and I think it's hard to write a biography of somebody if you don't have a sense of what their personality is like. Uh, so I was lucky enough to be able to, to talk to his uh, 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 daughter, uh, and she was very generous with uh, uh, her time. Uh, and uh, that and, and talking with uh, uh, some of his former colleagues on Recorder's Court uh, gave me a much deeper sense of what he was like as an individual. Uh, and, and the takeaway point that I have from talking to his daughter uh, is while he might have been formally austere in public, uh, he had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, and uh, there's one story we tell in the book uh, that she relayed to me. Uh, they'd always take the bus home, right? So you go to work, take the bus home. Uh, his kids would run out uh, and be at the bus stop uh, waiting for him. Uh, and his wife was an amazing uh, individual as well, a, a very prominent uh, physician uh, in town. Uh, and uh, uh, his daughter told me that that, that her, her father was less stern. <laughs> her mother was kind of the enforcer in the house. Uh, and this is during World War II. Uh, and so we'd meet at the uh, uh, the bus stop and, and, and Crockett would ask his children, how's the war department? Uh, uh, in reference to his, his wife, right? So uh, calling his, his, his wife the war department to his kids and trying to get the lay of the land before he comes in the door. Uh, Oh, that's funny. Uh, and, and I just that helped me really sort of see the, the sense of humor. Right. Uh, and, I, and I don't want to belie we have we have letters in the book that he wrote to his wife uh, from prison. And that's a different part of the story. Um, but it, it's a really deep uh, relationship between the two of them. So the, the sense of humor calling to the word department gives you some insight into him. But the book also gives you some insight to, to really a, a deep personal relationship that, that he and his wife had. Uh, you and you how definitely get it. Was. Yeah, you definitely get that from the book. You you get that sense of a, a deep commitment, and uh, each one of them has each other's back in a way. You know, yeah. I, 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 we definitely sense that. Um, Crockett had in his early life a lot of trajectories that helped him form himself um, and develop who he was. Basically, could you give us one example? It's like everybody always has this one thing in their early life that set them going. Uh, could you give us like one example of that? 
Yeah, so I mean, you got to kind of situate. He was born in 1909. Uh, he was born in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, which is uh, really the uh, the heart of, of Jim Crow. Uh, but he was also born at a time in history where uh, black politicians, black judges, uh, uh, black professionals during Reconstruction were still part of living memory. Uh, and I don't think that we appreciate how important that was to his generation. It wasn't fictional. It wasn't just sort of a visionary thinking about how a, 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 a black folk could be taking positions of, of power and, and, and having leadership. Uh, and, and out of Jacksonville, you had uh, uh, a couple of luminaries. Uh, and, and those were very influential, I think, in, in, in him imagining what was possible for himself. So you know, I want to sort of paint this picture that he had a very supportive family, uh, very supportive black community, uh, and was really raised as a product of that. Uh, and he went to Stanton High School, uh, which was uh, one of only a handful of high schools in the South. So to have, and it was segregated, but to have a black high school, uh, uh, we think, you know, is, 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 is the norm, but that was the exception. So a lot of things had to align uh, for him to, to actually even get a basic education, let alone uh, go on and, and get the, the advanced education that he ultimately would. Uh, but a story that he would tell a lot, and it's in the book uh, as well, uh, is the story that uh, there was a speech contest uh, uh, in the school uh, and he wanted to participate. And he was told by the, the, the teacher who was running it that the selection had already been made, that they had chosen two people to represent the school in this kind of, of, of intramural competition. And he goes and he talks to his mother, who was a, a very strong influence on, on his development. Uh, and his mother says, well, uh, as long as there's a route to an appeal, uh, the decision is not final, right? So uh, <laughs> she should have been a lawyer herself. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Very good lawyerly advice. Uh, and so he goes to the principal uh, and says it's not fair. Uh, and the principal agreed. So they had a, a competition inside the school to determine who would represent the school. Uh, and another kind of just fun through line from the story is that the, the debate was around uh, the, the post-Civil War uh, uh, amendments. So the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, and 15th Amendment. Uh, so it also sort of shows his, his exposure to the Constitution, his fight for racial justice was, was instilled uh, early on as well. Uh, and to make a long story short, he won the school competition internally to represent the school, then won the intramural competition and received a, a, a scholarship award of $200, right? Again, that doesn't seem uh, grand today, uh, but that money made it possible for him to uh, go to college. Uh, and he went to, to Morehouse College uh, and was a Morehouse man the rest of his life, very proudly so. Uh, but that competition not only taught him life lessons about uh, appeals right, and persistence, uh, but also uh, pragmatically enabled him uh, to, to further his own education, which was critical at that time. Yeah. So, so you mentioned like this. Um... Various alignments help you move forward trajectory of your life. That is a perfect example. Also, when he's out of law school and he has that circumstance that he meets R.J. Thomas on a train, you know, this this was the uh, another various alignment that put him on the path that he we well know him for because, you know, this this changed his life. So he enters UAW staff and he starts doing what what did he do at UAW staff? And I got to like also ask you, because you do put this in the book, what was the souring with Walter Ruther? So our audience could understand that something it wasn't all peachy in the UAW Solidarity House. Yeah, no, it, and it probably never has been all peachy in the, yeah. in the UAW. I'm just thinking about the the, the turmoils that they're going through now. Uh, but uh, uh, if you sort of follow the trajectory of his career after Morehouse College, he goes to the University of Michigan. Uh, and uh, you know, how he ended up here and why is a, a different story. But this is the first time he ever been in Michigan was when he had, you know signed up for three years at the University of Michigan Law School. 
Uh, and then when he starts to, to practice, uh, uh, he was the, the one of the first black lawyers to be appointed the, at the Labor Department in D.C. Uh, and rose up to be one of the highest black lawyers in, in the Roosevelt administration. So he's starting out with labor, right, and, and the labor focus. He hits on the, the racial glass ceiling at the Department of Labor and then moves to the Fair Employment Practices Committee uh, uh, that was recently uh, established. So he, he starts to have very strong credentials of, of leadership and knowledge in, in labor law. Uh, that magical sort of moment with uh, uh, R.J. Thomas, who was then the president of the UAW, uh, lands him in Detroit in 1943, uh, just shortly after the the, the 43 uh, race riots. Right, so he's entering Detroit. Uh, the whole of Detroit is is in racial turmoil. Uh, there's all sorts of issues of race inside the union, uh, and he was tapped by by R.J. Thomas to head the uh, Fair Practices Committee at the UAW, uh, whose charge was to fight racism inside the UAW. Uh, you sort of imagine how 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 daunting that was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but at that time, uh, 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 Ruther was uh, the main representative at General Motors, right? uh, and the, the negotiations were similar, although there were more auto companies back then. Uh, where you sort of negotiate a template, uh, and the template they had with Chrysler and Ford uh, had a non-discrimination provision, uh, and that obviously for for both Crockett personally, but for his position in the UAW was critical. Uh, and he wanted to make sure there was a non-discrimination provision in the General Motors contract. Uh, and Ruther had promised him that there would be, right? Uh, but when the tensions sort of got high in the negotiations, uh, Ruther caved. Uh, and so the General Motors contract that year, unlike Ford and Chrysler, didn't have a non-discrimination provision. Uh, and, and another aspect of, of Crockett's personality is just completely man of principle and courage, right? So to make a promise is to keep a promise. Uh, and when Ruther did not keep that promise, uh, uh, that really ended uh, the prospect of any sort of positive relationship between Crockett and Ruther because uh, uh, Crockett couldn't trust him. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had breached that uh, word on something that was critical to, to the union, but also critical to Crockett personally. Uh, and that, amongst all sorts of other things, as, as Ruther is rising to power, uh, is trying to purge people who are in opposition to him, uh, a lot of red baiting inside the UAW. Uh, and so as Ruther uh, ascends, right, he gets rid of uh, the opposition uh, and Crockett was part of the opposition. So Crockett was purged. Uh, but two other legal luminaries, um, uh, Maurice Sugar uh, and Ernie Goodman, were also purged at the same time. And they end up outside of, of the UAW uh, and face an extreme labor boycott. Right? The UAW, Ruther, Ruther didn't just want to win. Right. Uh, yeah. He wanted to bury you. Uh, and so as they're trying to start their own private practice, uh, they're facing this incredibly strong uh, boycott uh, uh, led by uh, Ruther and the UAW for people not to go to probably the three best labor lawyers uh, in, in the country uh, to deal with labor issues. Right. Right. And so but they did they did they did go forward on with the with their, with their law firm, obviously, Um and there's two other books, and I'll be talking about them later in our introductions about these two other books that um, kind of makes a trifecta of uh, law, labor, and civil rights within the Detroit, coming out of Detroit. But I want to talk about a big chunk of the book takes care of the Battle of Foley Square. And not many people, I, I didn't know much about it. I didn't know it was the most longest litigated trial in U.S. history either. I knew a little bit about it, but you gave great insight in how this trial became and what came out of it. And you know what came out of it was to our listeners, everybody gets arrested. Not only those who are being prosecuted, but the, the defense attorney, you know, so even Crockett goes to jail. Could you just give us a good s- summary of this case and why did he why did Crockett go to jail? Yeah. So um um 
United States versus Dennis uh, was the effort by the U.S. government to arrest the entire top leadership of the United States Communist Party. Right? And uh, uh, to sort of imagine uh, if uh, the, the, the Department of Justice were to arrest the entire leadership of the Democratic Party yeah. right? or, yeah. or the Green Party, if you want kind of a, a slightly, you know, a, a, a more calibrated uh, example. Uh, and the important thing, and this is what motivated Crockett to, uh, uh, to, to, to take the case and fight the case so hard, uh, is that the government was prosecuting the, the top leadership of the Communist Party, not for what they had done, right, but for what they thought. Right. So you sort of think about the First Amendment, that sort of very critical distinction between uh, advocacy and speaking and thinking and political speech, which this was, uh, versus anything that would be actionable in terms of, of, of a crime. All right. So to, to let your listeners know that they're not familiar with this is really uh, 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 one of the lowest points in our nation's history about the failure uh, to uphold the First Amendment. Uh, so that's kind of the backdrop. But it was also, uh, you know, the, the, the beginning stages of McCarthyism, the, the, the Red Scare, so that kind of whole national uh, uh, hysteria is going on. Uh, and at that point, you know, we might sort of reflect about the polarization today. Right. So it's not the first time we've been polarized. We've seen the kind of, of atrocities that are possible when we uh, uh, give up on our democratic institutions and our, and our legal institutions. Uh, so there's a great story and, and, and everything comes back to Maury Sugar. And so I'm glad you sort of, 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 of allude to him. And I think that the listeners also have to uh, think about Sugar and Crockett and Goodman, as you were saying, as a, as a, as a, a, a trio. Uh, but there's a great story in the book where, where Crockett's actually painting his living room right? and, and up on a ladder uh, when he's told he has a call. And on the call is Maury Sugar uh, who on New York, who had been advising uh, the, the the defendants in United States versus Dennis. Uh, and it was very important to, to the uh, uh, defendants to have an integrated uh, defense team. And they did have so, uh, 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 which again, something I only learned uh, going through the papers, that it was Charles, Charles Hamilton Houston was the first black lawyer uh, representing uh, uh, the, the, the defendants in U.S. versus Dennis. And uh, for your listeners, I mean, he's one of the, the most important luminaries of the black uh, legal strategies that that resulted in uh, Brown v. Board of Education. Right. So so Crockett is stepping in for Charles Hamilton Houston. Uh, but but Marie Sugar crawls up and says, we, we would like you to, to join the team. Right. And, and there's a sort of very complicated set of internal decisions he's got to make because uh, anybody representing the Communist Party is going to be viewed as a communist. Right. And, and everybody was being blacklisted if you had any association with the party. Uh, and his wife was just starting her own uh, a medical practice and, and the kind of a boycotts don't go against only one member of a, of, of a family. Uh, but again, the, the notion of courage and principle, uh, what Crockett thought was that everybody uh, deserves a defense, right? And it was an obligation of lawyers to be taking cases, even if they were unpopular and even if they would suffer uh, 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 personally uh, uh, and professionally by that action. Uh, and he also believed in the Constitution. Right. And, and we talk later about the contradictions of uh, of an African-American having such strong faith in, in, in law. Um, um, yeah. But uh, those two things motivated him to take the case. Uh, so he goes to, to New York. Uh, as you said, at that time, it was the longest criminal uh, uh, trial uh, in U.S. history. Um, and it was one of the trials of the last century. So you imagine uh, hundreds of people picketing right uh, uh, outside the courthouse led to other legislation from Congress about banning picketing at <laughs> yeah. federal courthouses. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they didn't have a chance from the beginning, right? So, you know, as you're fighting this uphill battle, uh, there's a lot in the book about Judge Medina, who is a, a character of, of not in a positive sense uh, himself, 
Uh, and at the end of the trial, uh, it was no big surprise that the jury convicted all of the defendants, right? But after Judge Medina dismissed the jury, he talks to the defense team and says, I have some unfinished business, right? And he calls them forward uh, and without notice, right? Without a hearing, without an impartial judge, uh, he sentenced them all to prison for criminal contempt, basically for uh, of zealously representing their uh, clients, right? So uh, not only is Crockett sort of uh, being blacklisted in the profession, he's also facing a jail sentence uh, for being one of the few lawyers in the country to take on a, a controversial case and, and, and do his best at it. Um, and uh, uh, so then he comes back to Michigan, he's facing disbarment, he's facing imprisonment. Uh, great way to start the 1950s. <laughs> exactly. Um, that was a shocker. Actually, to tell you the truth, I kind of knew it was, he was going to jail, but the way this judge treated them, yeah. With such contempt for just speaking and defending so passionately, very well, yeah. too, facing no, uphill and, battles, you said. And and I believe that the treatment of Crockett was even worse. I think yes. it's sort of, of, of racism. Uh, interestingly, Crockett didn't think so. Right. So there's, again, sort of a, a person in real time didn't think he was being singled out because of his race. Uh, but I think if you read the transcript and a number of the things, it was very clear that, that race was one of the issues. But they, they were all beat up. So, I mean, it wasn't that it was the only one. Uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, the, 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 you just imagine. And, and I think and this is something to, to sort of think about, um, you know, he had been insulted his whole life coming out of, 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 of the Jim Crow South. And, and he was very clear that racism was not a Southern phenomenon only. Uh, he faced a lot of racism in the North. But if you understand his mind, he believed in the rule of law. Right. Right. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, vigilante justice, the racism, the private racism, things that, that he had learned to live with. And, and he was in danger far more times than other parts of his life. But he was never so angry when the rule of law failed to protect him. Right. Uh, and so the kind of, of, of real anger he had with that was was long lasting. And, and the irony is, is, is as bad as prison is for four months, uh, as bad as, as being sent in criminal contempt uh, throughout his life, he would face even greater physical challenges. Uh, to his safety, uh, but uh, few things made him more angry than the fact that the rule of law failed uh, in that case. And and that's that's what you have to admire about him, absolutely, because he he never lost trust in the Constitution or the law. Yeah. Frustrated them, but he didn't lose trust in it because. It but, could... but he had a particular view of what the law could be, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't this sort of naive notion. Uh, and he makes the case very clear at a number of of, of points in his life that he really believed. Uh, that only black judges, right? And by extension, I think judges of color or judges who come from backgrounds that have been uh, uh, marginalized, uh, only they could see the real potential uh, in the Constitution and only they could enforce it, right? So there's a very kind of also role as a lawyer and then as a judge and as a congressman, uh, he believed there was a special responsibility and special ability uh, of black judges and, 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 and black lawmakers to uh, realize uh, the potential of, of these constitutional protections. And this is one of the reasons that he ran for recorder court in Detroit. Yeah, the, 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 the different complicated motivations. I think at the end of the 1950s, he was also just disillusioned with the practice yeah. of law as a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in the book, the readers will also sort of see the way in which the National Lawyers Guild, that, that Sugar and Goodman and Crockett were critical uh, in, in developing, played a really important role in the civil rights struggle in the South. Right? And I think that sort of realigned him gave him new energy. And when he was coming back from, from Mississippi summer in, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, I thought he, I think he wanted to take the fight public, right? He wanted mm -hmm. to find public roles where he could be fighting for civil rights. 
So there's a failed run for the common council, which was the, the, the city council of that day in 1965, uh, and then a successful run uh, for recorder's court judge in 1966. And he stepped in at an opportune time to be yeah. a recorder court in Detroit. I mean, we all know uh, uprising of, of the 67 rebellion, but there's some other other stories that not many people outside of Detroit, even Detroit in Detroit know about and specifically New Bethel Church. This is something, a pinnacle part of, of Crockett, of using the law, being a, a Black jurist to be able to help people. Could you explain to people what this New Bethel Church incident was? Yeah. So uh, 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 amazing story, right? And, yeah. and I think it yeah. is important to, to see how new he was on the bench when he was doing these things. So uh, he won the 66 election, which means it was January 1st, 1967, uh, that, uh, that, that, that he started becoming a judge or that became a judge. Uh, and so the, the rebellion is happening in his first year, right, in his first seven months uh, as a judge. Uh, and he was very courageous at that. I mean, what you have to really remember is that the, 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 he'd been preparing for this role his whole life. Right. right. Uh, and, and, he, and he was an expert in the law. Uh, uh, he had a, a backbone of steel. Uh, he knew uh, right from wrong and he would act on what he thought was right. Right. So New Bethel. Uh, uh, the New Bethel Church uh, was uh, pastored by C.L. Franklin, Reverend C.L. Franklin, uh, who was the, the father of Aretha Franklin. So if people kind of get a, a, the association there. Uh, but C.L. Franklin uh, was a civil rights leader in his own right. right? And so a very important uh, a civil rights actor. Um, uh, and he had uh, leased his church, right, the facilities, uh, to the Republic of New Africa. right, And the Republic of New Africa the year before uh, had formed in Detroit, national organization, but formed in Detroit, and, and was a black separatist group, uh, uh, believing that uh, the, the 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 southern states, right, the states where slavery was and where African American uh, uh, exploitation uh, 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 had actually enabled the creation of that wealth, uh, they wanted that land ceded uh, to a black nation uh, to become the Republic of New Africa. Uh, and they were holding their second convention in the New Bethel Church uh, in 1969. Uh, and uh, uh, there was an altercation outside the church, right, uh, where one police officer was shot and killed and another police officer was shot. Uh, and then within minutes, and we can talk about the backstory of this, how much surveillance was at that church and why those two policemen were ever allowed to, to drive up that street. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so in my mind, and, and we make the argument uh, in, in the book, but it's, it's still speculation that uh, uh, there was really a failure of the police uh, themselves that enabled those two folks that didn't know what was going on uh, to walk into to, to the fight that, that occurred. All right. right. Uh, but because there was such heavy surveillance, literally within minutes, right, scores of police officers are showing up at the church uh, and they basically in, invade the church with guns blazing. Uh, and two years after uh, a major riot and rebellion was started because of a mass arrest, right, uh, uh, the police do what? They engage in a mass arrest uh, mm -hmm. where every man, woman, and child in the church uh, were, were arrested right, and taken to the first precinct. Uh, and um, so uh, 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 Jimmy Del Rio, who was a state African-American state uh, senator in Michigan, and C.L. Franklin uh, knock on Judge Crockett's door, who was living in Lafayette Park, which was not far from where the police precinct was downtown at that time, tell him what's going on. Right. And within an hour, uh, Crockett is at the police station uh, with a writ of habeas corpus in hand, uh, demanding from the, the desk officer the names of all the people who had been arrested and detained. 
which they did not have, uh, demanding that he be uh, 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 escorted up to, to the police commissioner's office, right, which they would not do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he knows where the police commissioner is. He goes up himself, right? <laughs> and he tells the police commissioner uh, that he wants him to notify the prosecutor and have a prosecutor uh, sent over right away. And then he wanted space in the courthouse, right, uh, to start holding habeas uh, uh, corpus petition hearings, right? So very shortly, that Sunday morning, right, uh, Crockett is in the police station holding court, right, and enforcing the uh, police and the prosecutors to present evidence why these people were detained, right? And, and the truth was there was no evidence. It was a sort of mm-hmm. this blind mass arrest. Uh, and so he starts releasing folks that the police cannot demonstrate any documentation why they should be held. Uh, and, and at one point, the, the, the prosecutor shows up, sees what's happening. Uh, the, the elected prosecutor, the deputy prosecutor had been there from the beginning uh, and basically orders the police not to follow the judge's orders. Right. Uh, and so he's held in contempt, you know, I think rightly so. Yeah. Uh, and, and Crockett orders that the proceedings be, uh, 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 you know, held uh, in abeyance until they could meet uh, later that afternoon in his courtroom. Right. So they recommend in his courtroom, uh, goes through all the defendants, releases all but two of them because there's no evidence of of suggesting that they had any involvement in the police shooting. Uh, And the next day in the newspaper, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Uh, And uh, just think about this. If if you had a black separatist group, you know, kills police officer, you think that would be the headline. Right. Uh, But it wasn't. The headline was uh, black judge uh, protects the civil rights uh, of black defendants, right? And, and the outrageousness of somebody doing that became the story uh, and, and a whole firestorm uh, is released uh, from Judge Crockett protecting the civil rights, right, uh, of, of people who had been wrongfully arrested. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that, is, that is a pinnacle of, uh, you can think of, of what was happening in Detroit. You know, here, here is is uh, the general white establishment still trying to do what they've always known to do. And finally someone's speaking up and coming through and they have to be punished and they have to be punished for it. Yeah. Exactly. No, and that, that whole notion and uh, uh, within hours, right. Uh, the governor was condemning Crockett, right. The mayor was condemning Crockett. There was a state uh, resolution calling for his impeachment. <laughs> uh, and it goes without saying that the Detroit police union, right. And the police unions are in, in my mind problematic today. Yeah. Uh, were leading the charge, right? right, uh, right. And, and the police themselves were picketing his courthouse, right? So just imagine that. The police are out there with signs picketing the courthouse uh, because of, of what he had done. Right. Now, every reaction gets an equal and opposite reaction. So the, the United uh, Black Front was formed to support Crockett, uh, and, and, and it was a critical moment in, in Black political history in Detroit. Right? And one, I think, can draw a through line between uh, the galvanizing, unionizing force uh, behind Crockett, uh, all the way up to and through the election of Coleman Young in 1974. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. New politics was emerging, uh, a new sensibility, a new exercise of, of, of power uh, was taking place. Uh, and that brought Crockett to a, an easy re-election. Uh, he was really one of the most popular uh, of, of figures in Detroit, right? Uh, and that same energy, uh, uh, I think one can argue, uh, uh, helped bring Coleman Young to, to the mayorship in, in 1974. No, easily can be done. And there's like many cities in the United States that had similar, not as big as the Detroit with Crockett, but similar trajectories to bring black, the first time the elected black mayors, 
you know, uh, DC, you can look at Washington, DC, for instance, and that kind of thing. But yeah, that was a perfect example of here's the energy coming out and moving the city to a new forward looking avenue. So what I say is like Crockett did live a full life. He kept, he did, did more things after this. Um, they can't get into the details, but, and it's an amazing life. Each, each section of his life is another trajectory into something better and proving that law and the constitution should be looked at, analyzed, and respected at the same time. What are some of the things that you, what is the, what's the message that a reader should take from after they read this book about Crockett, about his life, about what they should rethink about? Yeah, so um, what I think the readers will find, um, and, and this was part of our, our strategy writing it, and, and this was Ed's decision or, or suggestion uh, very early on, uh, is that the reader should have an encounter with Crockett himself, right? Uh, and so we use lengthy quotes, right? Mm-hmm. So we actually get a sense of his voice. You get a sense of his personality, get a sense of his conviction. Uh, and I think being exposed to that voice, what the readers are going to say is he's talking to me. He's talking to my time. He's talking to my moment, uh, which is sad, right? That a voice coming from 50 years ago uh, is actually giving you better advice and guidance and insight into the racial conflict that we face today, uh, really than any political actor has in the last three decades. Right? And, and, and I think you can think about this. Eddie Glaud in his book, Democracy in Black, has a really powerful critique of black uh, liberalism right? uh, and, and the narrowing of voices and then the imagining of possibilities uh, coming out of, of, of a lot of black leadership. Uh, whereas Crockett is not coming from that tradition. Crockett is coming from a very different tradition, has a very different view of, of, of labor rights, of economic rights, of racial justice, uh, of what the, economic, what the legal possibilities are of, of the Constitution. Uh, so he actually, I think, has more to say to folks who are caring about the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and racial justice more generally uh, than, than any other voice they're going to be exposed to. Right? So what I hope the readers say is not only learning an amazing life right, and, and seeing what it means to live this amazing life that did tremendous things decade after decade after decade, uh, but to realize that he has things to teach us today. Uh, mm-hmm. And that if we want to have better, deeper intuitions about the fight for racial justice today, I can't think of anybody better than, than George Crockett to be one of their mentors. I completely agree. It kind of like reminds me of I, one of my, my heroes, still always my hero, is Bayard Rustin uh, for what he's did. And after reading Crockett, I'm curious, did they ever meet? Not to my knowledge, but, but, yeah, but Crockett so. was, was everywhere. And, and, and the New Bethel incident made him a national figure, right? yeah. which is another sort of important part of the story. Uh, that 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 spoke to the nation, uh, and so you'd find New York Times stories following what's happening to Crockett. Uh, uh, but to my knowledge, I have no direct knowledge that they met. Um, yeah, me either. I, I, I started digging these, myself. You know, talk about like, one of these conversations you would love to to imagine. Uh, that would be a, a a really amazing conversation to imagine what they would sit around the table and 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 talk about. Yeah, they would talk about painting living rooms probably for a while. You know. <laughs> All right. Our last question is always about, we're always curious to see what kind of collections you use at the Ruther Library, as well as any other collections you use in other archives, just to help people understand where you went, how you did it, and if they want to follow up, absolutely, those collections are available. So let's start with the Ruther. Obviously, you used a certain collection heavily. Yeah. <laughs> but what, so, I mean, uh, uh, first off, I mean, the, the, the Ruther was so supportive. I just want to, to just say how uh, how good uh, the folks, the librarians, the, the support that exists at, at that archive. And uh, we could not have done it with not just 
the resources, but also the the, the people helping. Um, yeah. and, and that was particularly true with the with the photographs. So we had uh, a lot of the primary materials that are coming out of the Ed Littlejohn collection, which he donated to the Ruther. And so you can actually uh, be able to, to 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 get these documents yourselves at the Ruther, which I think is an amazing service that that Ed is provided and and, and the, mm-hmm. the Ruther is facilitating. Uh, but uh, but starting with the Little John collection, uh, which I said that is something that that, that that Ed has spent his whole life collecting, and it goes beyond just Crockett. But that includes then all these wonderful resources that are specific to Crockett that nobody else had access to. And, and my two favorite, uh, uh, Crockett was a scrapbook person, right? And so he had these two huge scrapbooks. Uh, about his time on Recorder's Court. Uh, and, and those are first are just amazing artifacts as we sort of go through and know uh, that Crockett himself would cut these out and put these in and sometimes made margin notations uh, of the things that, that were important to him. Uh, so those are kind of my two favorite resources. That, that, but you just feel the time. You start turning these pages, you're back in the 1960s. Uh, you're, you're feeling the kind of, of, of conflict that was in the air uh, racially and politically. Uh, but I'd also say that, that there's a number of things uh, critical out of the Goodman uh, uh, collection uh, of Ernie Goodman. Uh, and so a lot of the, I think, new insights that we helped generate into Crockett's role in cases like the Michigan Six, when the, 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 the prosecutions of state right. leaders of the Communist Party uh, were taking place, uh, that we were getting directly out of, uh, out of the, the Goodman uh, archival collection. Uh, and then when we tried to, to broaden the scope and let the people, uh, the readers, uh, experience the the sort of, of photography, uh, as well as uh, some of these just sort of wonderful artifacts, like the like the telegram telling him he has to report to New York to go to jail, right? Or uh, some of the campaign uh, posters against him in the 1966 uh, campaign that can be traced back to J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover himself, who didn't want anybody who represented uh, a communist party to have any elected position in the United States. Uh, those were also things that were, were very helpful throughout the Ruther collection to, to make it not just text uh, that, uh, that I think brings it alive, but, but give you multiple ways to get insights into what those times were. Right, right. Did you use any other archives? No, I mean we're basically it's it was, all, it was, uh, all at the Ruther and, and okay. primarily with uh, with Ed's collection, which was really going back to Crockett himself. Right, one stop shop there for you. Excellent, Peter. We do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your book, No Equal Justice. Um, we are so so thrilled about it. I enjoyed reading it. It was a wonderful book to read. Um, learned so much more than I actually knew about the Communist Party, as well as keeping trust in the law. But also questioning it at the same time. Great, great to know this time of day of an age of what we're living through. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much, Dan. I really enjoyed talking with you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan.
Troy Eller English, the creator of making Dan sound like a fool, but sound good at the same time. <laughs> it's a talent. It is. <laughs> it's a fine line. It's a very fine. Oh, it's a fine line already. <laughs> That's right, lady. <laughs> Excellent. The reason I'm bringing up books, <laughs> I got the giggles now. <laughs> but there are three books about three lawyers who. I had this word before. Fantastic. Fantastic. Seventy-fifth episode will just be outtakes of, and us like saying like, "Wow, Dan, you're a really idiot there." <laughs> And then you going, fantastic. (laughs) Remember this one? (laughs) This golden oldie. (laughs) They couldn't pronounce Bart's last name. (laughs) Can you pronounce it now? I have no idea what his last name is.